Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. It is Wednesday, June 24th. Today, I want to talk about a, a variety of things with a common thread being the sweeping generational generalizations we make about everything about boomers, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z. And I'm kind of throwing, I wish, I don't know. Here's my problem. I wanted to like kind of do a Gen Z deep dive. My problem is I never plan my episodes. And so I just get energy and then I follow it. And then I kind of like binge study. And I feel like a lot of this I already know and love to talk about. But I actually kind of wanted to dive into Gen Z the best I could for a a few reasons. Um, One being I talked about them a lot on Visco Girl Wash Your Face and the episode from September, I think. And the We Need to Talk episode where I examine their involvement in TikTok. A lot of my diving into Gen Z has largely been participating in the commentary about thinking they're so confusing, right? Like, what the hell is a Visco girl? Why are people, you know, dancing on TikTok with a George Michael earring, Sean Hunter hair, and like sticking their tongue out? It's like, what are e-boys? What? Why is Charlie D'Amelio the most famous woman in the world? Like, there's so many confusing things about the way Gen Z behaves that I feel like we're culturally kind of mocked for the you know larger part of this past year but now they're being heralded as these like you know heroes for their political activism but i think a lot so even if you don't support their alleged them taking credit for you know all the all the empty seats at the trump rally which i'll explain um even though that's kind of a politicized issue a the, the it's it's worth exploring and digging into a just understanding the psyche and activism of a Gen Zer. B understanding their Gen X parents that I have overlooked entirely and that are even referred to as the lost generation, which isn't fair. And I'm interested to know who their parents are because that's who's shaping them. But beyond that, I want to kind of dig too into like that story as it relates to the power of the K-pop fandom. I'm always arguing for the importance of pop culture. I'm always arguing to not dismiss people who are fans of something as being these, you know, homogenous, screaming, crying, lame fangirls that have no, couldn't possibly have any intellectual interests um, or high standards for themselves as people. When really these fan groups are dynamic, diverse groups of individuals who are like banding together for causes. And regardless of how you feel about Trump's, they've been raising money for causes for years. They, they're, they, the work that K- Korean pop music fans, they're not just in Korea. The globalization's insane. The, the penetration among young people is insane. The engagement is 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 exponentially higher than for any other fandom. I don't know. I, I had no idea their history of how much charity they do. I had no idea that they use their standom, their ability to flood hashtags, to drive streams, to drive charts, to almost reverse program algorithms to work in their favor. I didn't know they kind of would leverage this ability to popularize their own artists and interests through the digital expertise that is pretty specific to young people on platforms that just don't have the same you know penetration amongst older demographics to use that for good causes is fascinating and i know the even the notion of calling something a good or bad cause is dependent on your views but this what this didn't all k-pop didn't mobilize to take down trump's rally k-pop's been involved in leveraging their fandom and their power of digital influence to contribute to charity to work toward other causes to 
influence politics. And of course, there's a scary downside to that. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's just an interesting thing. And I want to discuss it as unbiased as I can. I don't think it's any secret that I'm on the side of preferring those seats empty. But to be fair, I think about this being flipped and, you know, some alt-right movement leveraging this kind of intelligence to get a broad message out to people to influence something. And I'm like, yikes. But that's the thing. That's why they're being kind of referred to as vigilantes, because the thing about being a vigilante is that it's perceived justice. It's all in how you look at it and all in how you perceive the adequacy of the thing you're trying to resist. And, um, you know, and I, I really am going to try to not get too into the political piece of it, because I just fundamentally think this story is interesting. And I think it's a really fascinating case study for technology, for Gen Z, and all the more reason that we need to be paying attention and not discounting the things we don't understand, because the people that understand them ultimately have the power. This is interesting. This generation matters. I've said from the beginning, we shouldn't write them off. We should understand them. And now I will attempt to understand them more. Think of this as like, we need to talk the sequel. We need to talk the sequel. <laughs> Xenon the sequel. I, I, can, I have so many attachments to Xenon Carr. Um, not only did I love her nebulous friendship, the space station, Commander Plank, I mean, what an evil genius, only comparable to that of Champlain from Mary-Kate and Ashley's Holiday in the Sun, a white-haired evil genius. Um, also, Mary-Kate and Ashley deep dives up on Patreon that I did with Kelly Bear, who's an incredible listener, and I had so much fun. Um, but also, the first words my husband ever texted to me were, zoom, zoom, zoom. And I just think it goes to show that Xenon is as relevant as ever, because what the hell did we do the past three months besides Zoom, Zoom, Zoom? And like, anyways, I'm, I'm proud to pay homage uh, with uh, Gen Z, the sequel. In terms of what's new with me, I actually recorded like a pretty downer intro that I just re-listened to. And I was like, yeah, let's scrap this. Maybe I'll like explain more toward the end. I don't know. I, I left I left Chicago for the first time in like three or four months since February. Um, over the weekend, it was glorious. I did not want to come back. I'm not thrilled to be back. I'm definitely feeling a little bit blue and struggling with nothing to look forward to and feeling like, in general, the things I'd normally look forward to are marked with an environmental tension based on everyone's differing beliefs and politicizing of what I think we all agree to be very horrible, wrong things happening in the world we feel very overwhelmed by, but I think we all take it out by, you know, convenient narratives and data points and sample sizes to form our own arguments that we all don't want to listen to each other, you know, make because we're so fixed in our own ways. Meanwhile, it's creating an inhospitable environment to even talk or have civil discourse. And I just am fearful of looking down the pipeline of an election year when we're already like, I, I don't know. I just have a lot of thoughts on like the, the tension among friends and families, even just like talking to people and passing and traveling. Like I just, it's, it's a weird time to be alive I don't see it getting better anytime soon. I don't know. It's just been weird. And I, I'm not saying this to complain, but rather I think a lot of us can relate to this. It's like you're cooped up and isolated for so long. And now I feel like the more I go out into social situations, tentatively, A, I'm terrified of the resurgence of quarantine. But B, even being out and about amongst people socially is a bit tense because we're dealing with so much that's going on. So it's like I went from isolation like physical isolation to emotional isolation and I, i'm not even i don't mean conversations surrounding like black lives matter or racism because obviously i'm encouraging of those conversations and you need to work through that anxiety i just mean like uh, we i guess i should only speak for myself i haven't been like living i've been stuck in my apartment for months as many of us have and uh when I catch up with people on the phone or in person, it's like 
I haven't been doing anything. Like, there's nothing going on in my life. So what do you talk about? You talk about COVID-19 or you talk about what's going on in the world. Both are things that people have very heated opinions about. It overhauls the conversation and it becomes stressful. And, you know, you can't really have a civil discussion and that sucks. Or sometimes you hear somebody really like say something you really don't. And you're like, oh, God. And it's just one of those things where it's hard to know what you take up with who and when. And I just feel like every interaction is, you know, centered on things that are inherently complicated and not necessarily fun to talk about, even though oftentimes necessary. And, you know, guys, I don't want to be a downer, but I also am just trying to be honest because I don't like faux positivity. I'm, I'm interested to hear what you guys are doing with your life. And also, I'm like in a city that really hasn't fully opened up yet. Even going out to dinner is depressing. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. It's just whatever. I know we all feel this. Um, you guys are nice to put up with me. Uh, I'm excited because I just talked to Garcelle from Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. She'll be on the podcast next week. I'm like, I'm trying to think of something entertaining to say. Like, do we, I don't know. What have I been thinking about? Does John B have lip, in, lip injections? <laughs> like, anyways, so let's just move on to the episode content. Uh, later on, I do kind of want to get into that a little bit more of what I said in terms of um i don't know i i it's like i'm i don't want to i want to keep you know things largely lighthearted, pop culture related and i'm careful about when i interject about politics because i want it to be something i care about and where i can add value i'm not you know feigning that i have some sort of expertise um you know as we look down an election year the way we have conversations and the way um we react to people instead of thoughtfully respond to people makes them stay quiet and how we need to really think through where our motivations are because so often i watch people interact and i'm like are you more concerned about being bullish and getting your point across so you look like a social justice warrior and that's why you're cutting people off and calling people names or like, do you actually care about the cause? Because if you care about your, your ego, I think you'll do the former. And I get emotionally reacting. And again, I'm not talking about Black Lives Matter or, or tone policing or telling people how to behave in terms of relaying their own experience. What I mean is general political conversations when I witness them, especially on social media. I feel like I watch people s do things that are almost performative in terms of wanting to get their point across, wanting to shut down the other person, make them look bad, make themselves look good. And... If people use that as a proxy for conversations in their real life, if you shut everybody down and don't use these conversations as opportunities to change people's minds, um, you're losing. You don't care about the cause. You care about looking a certain way. You care about making sure your stance is known. You don't care about making sure your stance is understood and is has the opportunity to actually be infiltrated into your opponent's side, which really is the thing that should matter. And I think that... There's just something is lost when we don't see the strategic value of understanding other people, not because we want to give life to their problematic views, but because how can you dismantle something from the inside without a blueprint? You need to be able to walk through that floor plan with your eyes closed to take it down. And I think that people don't get where others are coming from, and it, it makes us more harshly judge one another. It makes us think where things were not. It makes us typecast one another as the most extreme version of our party. And um, I think that there's a lot more productivity that could come from these conversations if they were civil. 
But on social media, they're like, you know, the call outs and the canceling and like the it's just it's insane. And sometimes it's warranted, but other times it's just kind of like. I don't know. It's 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 crazy. I just want to make sure we're actually doing things to move the needle and not doing things because it's like cool to have a certain reaction. You know what I mean? So, yeah, we'll 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 see where it goes. Uh the most important thing for me is you know, I want to add value. I want to do something different. I didn't start this podcast to regurgitate what every other news outlet's saying. I did it to encourage people to, you know, at times reminisce and talk about utter nonsense in an overly serious way but also to always encourage people to dig deeper to find the real story to examine the layers and it never really comes from an agenda on my part but i kind of do like to show both sides i like to show the gray and even i think this tiktok k-pop thing has two sides that it's, it's hard to see when you're on the team of wanting you know the seats to be empty um, but it's important to note, especially because there's like a, a crossover with racial issues. So we'll we'll dive on in. But that's really always my end goal is, you know, like with Caller Daddy, it's like everybody, you know, the, the conventional thought process was they get paid 500K and they want more money. Oh, my God. Alex and Sophia are so greedy. Like, no, they actually weren't. Like, let's let's dig into this. Let me explain why. And when you net out, like the answer is kind of like, no, they technically aren't greedy, but like, yeah, they are acting a little greedy. You know what I mean? Things just I, I want us to not approach things in a monolithic fashion that is black and white, that it's one thing and nothing else. And I think nuance is so important to factor into everything we do so we don't misjudge, mislabel, misunderstand something. And it's important that we do this in real time while it's top of mind so you don't just like make up your mind move on and then misunderstand something your whole life like how i densely th thought samson was some sort of hero i was reading on wikipedia that like he is in a lot of like christian denominations compared to jesus and if you listen to last week's episode like uh, excuse me i can't wait to dig into more of those historical stories i'm so excited and as i work through howard's and um people's history of the united states to like retell some historical stories as well I want to kind of figure out a series or something. I don't know. Like Johnny Appleseed, what's up? Paul Bunyan, what's your deal? John Henry, you f I feel like you're underrated. You know, like Annie Oakley, real person, real, you know, gr gr actually great shooter. Annie, get your gun is based on a real person that did a real thing. Next time you, you know, sing Rub-A-Dub-Dub, Three Men in a Tub, to your toddler... Keep in mind, it was um, an original rhyme to make a reference to Maids in a Tub as in a fairground attraction that was a peep show and it was calling out otherwise respectable people, the butcher baker and candlestick maker, for their despicable actions wanting to ongle naked ladies, the maids. Oh my god, I want to go to a fair so bad. I love the food. I love the funnel cakes. I love the corn on the cob. I love a deep fried Oreo. I love the thing where they cut a potato in like a spiral thing and then like fry the potato spiral and then put cheese it's just like straight up from like a cardboard box, like not even a lined box, just like a cardboard box of cheese from some food service. I love to play fast and lose with a carnival ride, you know, that was half-assed put together by some like high high school student who does not care about my safety or well-being. But that's part of the thrill, right? I love the people watching. I love the Ferris wheel. I think I'm just now realizing I pretty much just love the food because I was just going to go back into food. Do they have booze at... F I don't even know. I don't remember. I'm too focused on the food. But anyway, guys, I, I just... I want to wear jorts. I want to have a, a face full of powdered sugar. I want to walk around and spend a fortune trying to win the 
largest, gaudiest stuffed animal I ever did see like I'm in the goddamn intro video of Step by Step. <sighs> that, was, that, intro, that intro is like two and a half minutes long. It's quite remarkable, actually. All right, so who is Gen Z? And why are they roasting millennials? <laughs> First, I want to thank our sponsor this week. They are a company that I'm very excited to be working with newly called Handy, the leading platform for connecting individuals looking for household services with top quality independent service professionals. I am here for the gig economy. When I first started Be There in Five, I used uh, and I had two jobs and I was doing the maths full time and had my corporate job. Like I didn't have time to do any of this. And I was using Handy often to not only clean my house or studio when I needed it, but also to help me like hang up shelves and to put together furniture and do all the things that I just didn't have time to do. And it saved me so much time. And obviously we all have been at people in our homes for a while and I'm so excited to be working with them and to use Handy again, because honestly, I want the company. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but kind of, uh, no, but it's such an awesome service. And I know above all else, you know, safety is big in two areas, right? One, making sure people are vetted before they come in your home. And Handy does just this. The pros booked through Handy are background checked and rated by customers to ensure quality. So you can see ratings, but be sure to learn more about Handy's background checks at handy.com slash trust and safety, trust hyphen and hyphen safety. And um, beyond that, the, in the times we're in, the second safety piece here is, of course, health. And Handy has provided their pros with personal protective equipment like masks and gloves and pros do a daily checkup in the app to validate that they are, in fact, in good health. And this isn't, you know, just for ad hoc one off uh, in home services by any stretch. It can be either. You, you can book something as soon as tomorrow, oftentimes, depending on availability, or you can choose a cleaning plan to choose a weekly, biweekly or monthly plan. And Handy can schedule your recurring bookings to make things easy. The pricing's up front. What you see is what you pay. You can pay securely on the app. 100% of the tip, what you can do on the app, goes to the pro, which I love. And there's a handy happiness guarantee. So if you're not satisfied with the quality of the service, then book another pro and they'll make it right at no extra charge. And I love this company and I've used it for a long time. And I hope you guys will give it a try too, especially, fingers crossed, if you live in a place that uh, you're in the clear to have, have people in your home. But rest assured, they will be safe. Regardless, so for my listeners, Handy has a special limited time offer. Get your first three hour cleaning for only thirty nine dollars. I'm sorry. <laughs> Sometimes I don't. <laughs> I just read that for the first time. I was like, damn, that's a good deal. Um, when you sign up for a cleaning plan, go to handy.com slash be there in five and enter promo code be there in five. That's a three hour home cleaning for thirty nine dollars with a cleaning plan at handy.com slash be there in five promo code be there in five terms and conditions apply. Visit Handy's website for more information. Handy, the most reliable name in house cleaning. So Gen Z in its most simple form. Is anyone born after 19, 1995? This doesn't have a definitive end. They're still being born. So the absolute oldest a Gen Zer would be is 25, which isn't the, as young as I maybe initially thought. Gen Zers, you know, all the usual things you'd, you'd expect. I, I'm not breaking news here. They have, uh, they're digital natives. They spend hours a day on their phone. They're very connected in social media. They prefer short form content to long they are prefer things like snapchat and, and and tiktok and instagram stories you know we millennials have an attention span of a whole 12 seconds gen z is the true goldfish here with an attention span of roughly eight seconds they currently make up about 25 percent of the population and you know typically generations are defined by whatever marketers want to know about you to reach you better or whatever other generations can use to talk shit about you that's really all this is for 
advertising and talking smack. Um, but what's perhaps the most remarkable about Gen Z, what a lot of people are focusing on, especially now, are their core values of being surrounding social responsibility. Their core beliefs being advocacy, diversity, authenticity. They're a more diverse generation than ever. They're an entrepreneurial-minded generation. 72% want to start a business. I, I think that the work mindset is much more chasing their passion, their dream job. They're identified as being somewhat pragmatic and realistic, more so than millennials. But um, they, like millennials, are focused on building a career that they love. And, you know, my argument with millennials, we didn't know we could build a career that we loved until we got there. And then we all scrambled and people talked bad about us. More on that later. Um, but these the millennials are, are, are Gen Z is considered to be uh, mindful of the future, incredibly conscientious. And they are when you think about it, like think about growing up with social media. Think about not only in the Internet, like from an early age, having a phone when you're 10.3 having access and information to everybody from all walks of life all the time, not just your immediate reference group beyond that, having social media and having the judgment and commentary and feedback from people constantly, your most formative, vulnerable years. It makes sense to me that they would be socially conscious because people are, are, have a soft spot and more vulnerability towards situations they've been through or seen firsthand. And think about the body image and cyberbullying and mental health issues that people must deal with having social media as a kid. Um, it, they're one of the, the, the dichotomy is kind of interesting because they're both considered to be uh, focused on the collective, the greater good and, and, ha and be community minded, but at the same time called the loneliest generation um, due to their digital connectivity, which theoretically brings people together. But as we know, it should not be a primary source of your social interaction or where you get any of your self-worth uh you know twinkle twinkle social media star there's so much more to who you are i heard somebody once say <laughs> um but yeah there i just think it's an interesting thing where i think before when i was researching gen z i was i was selectively hearing and looking for stats to kind of justify or make me understand their social media behavior better but what i was missing all the while are these characteristics about being values driven and and identifying with causes and supporting organizations that embrace them and their their interest level in racial, gender, and income equality and environmental issues and standing up for those values is not only important in their life and something they prioritize, but also something they insist in like the brands they work with. And that's important for marketers to understand. Um, but at the same time, to eat, to, oh, Tugboat. Hey, buddy. Tugboat's Gen Z. Don't look. <laughs> so entitled. Okay, I'm back. I, uh, it's, it's an ongoing battle. Um... Anyway, I just wanted to set the stage with some of their core values. And you might be thinking, well, is that that different? I mean, millennials are, I know, we're pretty great. I agree. I think that, you know, we have slightly longer attention spans, slightly less screen involvement, though. Mine's like, you know, astronomical. Um, we still communicate with text. They are largely visual and images. We're curators and sharers, and they're creators and collaborators, you know, even as witnessed through our preference of instagram and the kind of self-promotional nature versus the duetting and the collab houses and stuff on tiktok that are kind of hard for me to understand um so it kind of makes sense and we're millennials are said to be a little bit more now 
and Gen Z is more future focused. We're people say we're optimistic, but I don't agree with that necessarily. And that we like want to be discovered. And then they're like, Gen Z is realistic and like wants to work for success. I don't know. These are such generalizations. I can't even handle it. Wait, also, I, this is so fun. So I just want to read you the popular names of each of the generations. So the lost generation is 1883 to 1900. Their girls' names are Maud, Effie, and Minnie. Boys are Will, Harry, and Charlie. The GI generation, 01 to 24, 1901 to 1924. Gertrude, Mildred, Viola, Elmer, Chester, and Clarence. Ah, yes, baby Elmer. Baby Mildred. <laughs> I know a lot of these names are coming back. I don't know if Mildred is, though. Millie could be cute. Silent Generation, 1925 to 1942. Dolores, Betty, and Joan. Jean, Billy, and Norman. Baby Boomers, 1943 to 1960. Linda, Judy, and Gail. Gary, Larry, and Dennis. <laughs> this is the, the, I mean, yeah, that that is perfect. Linda, Judy, Gail, Gary, Larry, Dennis. Like, gang's all here. Um, generation X. <laughs> 1961 to 1981. I was really hoping this would be Karen because I'm trying to figure out if Karen's a Gen X or, or a boomer. I think she's a Gen Xer, but people speak very positively of Gen Xers. Um, it's America's a neglected middle child, allegedly. Uh, the girls are Tammy, Tracy, and Tanya. Boys are Todd, Scott, and Chad. Todd, Scott, and Chad are like the <laughs> and Jeff. Like I, I. Th- those are Gen X, but I identify with those, and I'm, like, picturing mega hotties because I think in that game Girl Talk with the boy cards, like, everyone's name was Chad, Scott, Jeff, Todd, you know? I don't know why I'm saying it like that. I just feel like there's a there's an air about a Todd, Scott, Chad, or Jeff. <laughs> Not a G-off, a Jeff. I was talking about this with my sister-in-law this weekend. Those are two different people. <laughs> um, millennials, girls, Brittany, Kelsey, Chelsea. Kelsey, Chelsea, Kelsey spelled K E L S E A. I don't, I don't know, I don't know many Chelseas that spell it that way, but I know many Britneys. Um, and then boys, Cody, Zachary, Kyle. Um, and then Gen Z, Addison. Oh, I love Addison Ray. Addison, Nevaeh, Zoe. Okay, boys, get this. <laughs> Aiden with a Y, Aiden with an I, and Jaden. Aiden, Aiden, and Jaden. Is this a bunch of women who watch Sex in the City and romanticize the charming furniture builder that Carrie so willingly threw away and was a better contender than Mr. Big? And we were all frustrated because if we could find ourselves an Aiden, we would hold on to him. It's funny to see infographics of millennial names because I like will take a glance. and I'm like, oh, wait, are you in my Facebook group? Because it's like Jessica, Ashley, Amanda, Sarah, Jennifer, Emily, Samantha, Elizabeth, Stephanie, Lauren. Ugh, those names just make me want to receive a clip art invitation in the mail to a sleepover order some papa john's play some light as a feather stiff as a board and watch two step children creepily be attracted to each other and watch cruel intentions what a dream what a life i think more accurate is like you know mason sophia isabella emma olivia you know like i feel like avery ava those type of names are popular too who the heck knows aiden jaden and aiden um okie doke so what I wanted to talk about with Gen Z first, kind of just giving a little bit of context. Not only are they changing how media is consumed and, and created and, and collaborated with, um, but I think that also, like, when I was growing up, and I know I, I try not to use anecdotal evidence, but let's be honest, that's all this is. Um, you know, g- growing up, like, we didn't, the internet wasn't like a regularly available thing, like, especially not in my pocket or in my bedroom at night. 
until I was left the house and was older than 18. Like I didn't have a phone till I drove, but the phone wasn't a smartphone. Anything that I knew about I either learned in school, somebody told me, or I learned on the real world. Um, you know, like it, it was a matter of using the media you consume as an outlet to the rest of the world. Otherwise, you pretty much only know your own experience. And I, I largely think that millennials maybe struggle to empathize as much as Gen Z in a sense that we kind of had to catch up late. I feel like so many of my more, you know, my narrow experience, like it shook me in my 20s how little I knew about other people, other cultures, how little diversity I had. I mean, I went to public school. I grew up in the suburbs. It, I think sometimes it's a function of where you live. And my parents gave me such a wonderful life um, and didn't withhold anything from me. But I just, you know, your experience is just limited to what you know. And um, not only like diversity of background, but like also just of like different situations, like I, I don't know. I just think if you don't know that many people that live drastically different fr differently from you that can introduce you to different scenarios through the eyes of a person you love and care about, you don't have to practice that active empathy very often. And then when you go out and like meet different people, see different scenarios, see things from different angles, you you're completely change your mind about how you feel about it. Because somebody you care about and have an emotional connection and attachment to is telling you their firsthand experience and you just don't see it so objectively and harshly anymore. And I just think if if you have unlimited access, you have a phone since you're 10, you're, you can be reading about all of the world's problems, all the live long. <laughs> like, I, I've always been so sensitive. I can't imagine if I knew half the stuff that was going on when I was young and how it, it would impact me as an adult, like how it would affect the way my brain formed. Um, I would be so sensitive to all of it. And, you know, I think I knew vaguely it was going on, but it's just not like I was going out of my way to read things that I didn't see in passing on the news from the very specific media slant that I was around. And then it's funny to like look back on being told like you'd go to hell if you drank or did drugs and like McGruff, the crime dog who took a bite out of fun. And, you know, my depictions of like drunk people being Ruthie from the real world. And then one time Kimmy Gibbler got drunk and the way I just <laughs> I just look back on like how much I misunderstood, but how badly I was trying to figure it out through piecing things together in the, in the actual real world, not the show. And, um, you know, I just kind of had a lot of like backtracking to do in a way. But anyway, um, how should I structure this? Should we do get right into like K-pop and the rally or do something more like a little bit more lighthearted first? Maybe I'll just kind of meander lightheartedly first and then spend time in the second hour walking through um how the whole thing with the rally happened and how k-pop is mobilized before and how there's inner workings and issues with racism that are kind of being ignored um anyway yeah let's chat first about i don't know i don't what am i even talking about oh yeah i wanted to go through this like a current tweet a tweet a twitter and tiktok phenomenon of gen zers making fun of millennials it's like a little it's it's a little it's a little too on the nose <laughs> but i feel like i need to i need to prepare a rebuttal of some kind so actually maybe we'll start lighthearted i am into that um i mean yeah it's i i will give credit where credit is due all day i i what i have seen from gen zers on tiktok is so funny they're creative. They're, I do not understand how their brains work so quickly. I do not understand how they can produce content that's funny and pointed when I talk for two hours and maybe say three things that are funny. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm impressed by their hearts and their commitment and their, I mean, really their in, intolerance for intolerance, right? 
Um, even I think about myself at a younger age, I'm like, I don't think I'd be ready to tackle a lot of these issues, you know, but here they are on the front lines. I give them full credit. But like I just said earlier, you can't make blanket statements about generations because all people are not the same. If anything, Gen Z is marked by their blazing individuality, right? Like they're kind of seen as more of a mosaic um, than other generations. Millennials are seen as a melting pot, which maybe I freaking love fondue um god is that a national chain the melting pot rules i went there for my f- for for a field trip for french class it's like yeah, going to au pan like eh, it's just like, not really french but okay we basically just like you know stuffed our hands with bread dunked our fists in hot cheese and like recited lines from muzzy commercials to pretend we spoke french <laughs> Je suis à yes that's french they're speaking but anyway i think so many gen Zers are great i'll vouch for them but also, like, let's not, they, they, not all of them are social justice warriors. Many are just like, you know, it, it's like if the Tide Pod eating thing is real, like, we, lest we forget. Uh, the, the, the e-boy of it all is tough, too. Like, I, I struggle with so many things that, you know, just because it's different doesn't mean it's wrong. And I'm always telling people to embrace it. But it is kind of funny hearing people change their tune. Now, before I get into the ways that they're trying to roast millennials now that they have society's favor and millennials will never seem to get it, I mean, I just want to remind you that, like, uh, the, the, the political and economic landscape that a generation grows up through is hugely instrumental in how that they turn out, right? Because people forget, like, millennials, like, a lot of the reason we are the way we are is because, like, we entered the workforce in a horrible recession. Like, we... The, we're in there's so many economic factors that pertain to our financial success that people hold against us that we're really a product of our time though and that's what's important about generational definitions is you know you can judge people by this series of psychographic and behavioral characteristics but it's not just because they chose that it's because they're a function of the time in which they grew up and the, the relevant technology the state of the economy the political unrest all of it like it impacts large groups of people and and, you know the thing is is it realistic to explain a like a lifespan of 20 birth years into a boilerplate of adjectives that you know exhaustively can capture all the dynamic individuals within a generation absolutely not but that's what's hilarious about generational generalizations is that they're kind of used by two people marketers to birds of a feather target you with people with similar characteristics because largely your you know your age is obviously a major driving force of your demographic age and gender being the biggest drivers of how people market to you and how people buy media beyond that the behavioral and psychographic characteristics that come along with the generalization with it with the general gener- generational mindset have a lot to do with technology and that affects how people target you with their ads. That's the name of the game is finding your target market and figuring out where they consume media and placing yourself in front of where they are most likely to be. Um, So generational definitions, I think are mostly used by marketers and beyond that they're less used as things that you identify with. If you're a part of the generation and more like, you know what I mean? It's, It's not like I walk around considering myself to be a millennial I only did that in response to people calling me all these names because I'm a millennial, because boomers and Gen X and Gen Z use millennial as kind of a weapon 
against people who are that to explain and not justify, but further invalidate and kind of make fun of their behavior as we do with boomers and being out of touch with technology or older or whatever. And as we, you know, I did with Gen Z and the Visco girl of it all. So it's a tool for marketers. It's a weapon for other generations. And overall, it's a tremendous overgeneralization that has some truth to it, but a whole lot of sweeping nonsense. But nonetheless, I think it's interesting to explore. And I will forever defend because millennials are just they, they forever will are so misunderstood. And I and I, you know, want to use my platform to help people understand our plight. The way I don't know, the whole conversation is just funny. I talked about this. Wait, yeah. And millennial and in TikTok. And um, there was another episode I talked about this in where it is funny because we all think we like invented suffering. And our instinct is just for people to not be like, you don't know how hard we had it. Inevitably, certain aspects of society get easier as things get easier and more automated and more isolated. There's downfalls, too. But the instinct is to kind of be like in my day. And I do this, too. And um, was it Visco Girl Wash Your Face when I talked about burning CDs? Like, I feel very strongly about this. And I'm sure any generation that had a clunkier process <laughs> Then the, you know, subsequent generations wants to point it out because there's something so sensory about like all these lengthy processes we went to, but we didn't know any better. And it's funny because now we can't imagine ourselves doing it. So it almost becomes an element of lore with like character building, you know, like think of streaming right now. Think of Spotify and the way you consume music currently relative to the way we had to build a playlist, a.k.a. mixtape. So right now you go to Spotify you just build your own playlist or you use somebody else's press edit and like add a bunch of songs and it's done. And it's like maybe a 10 minute process. And I hate when like older people do this to me about like on my day, but like, yeah, I'm like, no, in my day, I, like I, I take such pride in my pop culture knowledge and my pop, pop culture passion because I spent time with it. Like I had to adjust my entire schedule around watching something live. If I wanted to hear a song again, I had to tape, like re record it on a like a blank cassette tape and hope that I hit the right time of the top 40. And then every time I wanted to listen to it, I had to physically rewind it. And then when we got to burning CDs, you know, as we talked about, you say us 90s kids talk about our music too much or like our identifiers with being from 90s, early 2000s or whatever. But the fact is, to sit down at your parents' PC, putting them at risk with some cash piracy or just committing felonies left and right, downloading Napster, BearShare, Morpheus, you know, LimeWire. You have to, in advance, without having any sort of direction, think of your ideal tunes off the top of your head for a fresh summer mix. You, you have to pick the songs in advance so carefully because they take hours themselves to download Half the time they're attributed to the wrong artist and you don't even get the right song. Then you have to artfully assemble them on a CD in a fixed order that you cannot change once the CD is made. Do you, do you want it to start slow and end fast? Do you want it to start fast and end slow? I opened one CD with Tim McGraw's Where the Green Grass Grows. This was a huge mistake that ruined my summer of 04. Because I wanted to open with something a little more down home, a little more nostalgic. I, I, I wanted to center myself you know, back to the imagery of where the green grass grows. Watch my corn pop up in rows. Every night be tucked in close to you. Raise our kids with the good Lord's bless. Point our rocking chairs toward the West. I do find that song calming in a sense. I, I do like Tim McGraw's old stuff. 
from there, I was like, well, I can't go too quickly into something fast. I need I need a, a, a palate cleanser of a song that would allow me to smoothly transition from country to rap or hip hop. And I remember at the last minute making a rogue decision that that perfect transition song was uh, To Be With You by Mr. Big. Uh, to say it didn't flow would be the understatement of the century. To say it threw off the vibe of my entire summer <laughs> would be to put it lightly. I feel like I need to explain these, like, play these transitions for you just to understand the whiplash of my mood based on my summer mix of 04, which was supposed to be my prime summer because I had quit volleyball. I had more time on my hands. I, I just started dabbling into some mics hard. I found my side part. Sunnen was working and going blonde for me, not orange, therefore allowing me to circumvent the expense associated with highlights that I would have had to spend my CPK money on. But instead, I could use Sunnen and spend my CPK money on a brand new stereo from Best Buy that's so sick, the elite security system is to take its faceplate off and therefore trick people from stealing it altogether. It's so hard working with a sponsor like Helix because I love them so much. I love my bed so much. And like, how am I not going to segue away from anything I ramble off about and say and not be like, well, if you're not asleep yet, you could be sleeping on a much more comfortable mattress. Um, I am so happy to be working with Helix again. You guys are awesome for supporting them and thus supporting me. I love this mattress. I, 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 I'm not blowing smoke. It's one of the first free things I was given as an influencer, and I'm not attached to it because of that. But it almost spoiled my experiences going forward because this product is so nice that anything I get now is, you know, it's fine. But this is a really nice mattress that I can't believe came from a box that I can't believe you pick out online that I got from a survey before I even, even ever sat on it. It is the only thing giving me any sort of comfort these days in an otherwise tense environment. And Helix Sleep makes personalized mattresses made right here in America and shipped straight to your door with free no-contact delivery, free returns, and a 100-night sleep trial. To choose a mattress, Helix made a quiz, and it takes, like, two minutes you you, to complete, and you match your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Do you want soft or firm? Do you sleep on your side or your back or your stomach? Do you tend to get hot? What's your partner's deal? You know, not that you need one, but if you have one, it doesn't hurt to meet in the middle and figure out, you know, the the right type of mattress for you because i like a softer mattress greg likes a firmer mattress we went in the middle and it's like pillow toppy but also stable and doesn't make my back hurt and i don't know guys i had a bed in a box from amazon for a while that i thought was awesome but like i just didn't know what i was missing out on i think a lot of us are sleeping on old mattresses and the first one we bought out of college because it was a fortune and we are committed to getting a full usage out of it or sleeping on something that, you know, it was a hand-me-down. But if you're even considering getting yourself a true, amazing adult mattress, especially with all the time we're spending in bed these days, you cannot go wrong with Helix. It was awarded number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ, Wired Magazine, and Apartment Therapy. And if you want to go take their two-minute sleep quiz and to get mass- matched to a customized mattress to give you the best sleep of your life, you can go to helixsleep.com slash be there in five. That's helixsleep.com slash be there in five. And right now they're offering up to $200 off all mattress orders. They have a 10 year warranty. You get to try it out for 100 nights risk free. They'll literally, they will pick it up for you if you don't love it. And how exciting that you can get $200 off again at helixsleep.com slash be there in five. H E L I X sleep.com slash be there in five up to $200 off all mattress orders and take my word for it you will not regret it dm me if you want me to like send you a pic of mine it's called like the it's called the dusk 
Um, it's just, it's, it looks, I don't know, it's really nice. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I'll stop now. <laughs> Do you remember that song by Emerson Drive? Should be sleeping instead of keeping these late hours I've been keeping. I like that song, but I hated that they used the word keeping twice. And I was just thinking about that as I was talking about sleeping. And that's it. What was I talking about? I think I was just detailing my lengthy CD burning process. Not that anybody cares. <laughs> I just need to feel joy. And because each song takes, you know, the, the, the even ide ideation phase takes forever. Then this individual song download takes forever. Then the flow takes forever. And then you literally do have to wait eight hours for it to buffer. God forbid the computer falls asleep, turns off. You know, somebody flips an unruly light switch. You just never knew, know what could happen. And all in, it was such a lengthy process for what is a fixed outcome that you had no control over. So to suggest that I take music from that era lightly, to suggest that it's some sort of, you know, vapid attempt to make people feel less cool, like I'm a 90s baby, you don't get how hard we had it. Like, no, I put in the time. I lived and breathed this culture. And when I made the rogue decision to put Where the Green Grass Grows, followed by Mr. Biggs to be with you, followed by Juvenile's Back That Ass Up radio edit in case my mom were to go in my car and hear it. That was that, and I had to suffer the consequences. What should have happened is I should have done Green Grass Grows, then maybe eased into a slower R&B like Confessions Part 2. Then we up the tempo a little bit. We go with like Nina Sky Move Your Body, right? I mean, this era, we had goodies. We had milkshake. Like, uh, like the, the, the black female artists and collaborators from 2004 and 2006 specifically are unmatched. I listened to a lot of hip-hop and rap and R&B in, in high school, and it, but it would dominated the top 40 completely. Like these songs are, I mean, are everything to me. Um, but anyway, it's all about progression. It's all about, for, you know, creating a vibe and you got to work your way up. Uh, so I think maybe track five or track six is when you get into back that as up. It's when you get into ice cubes, put your back into it. If you're feeling crazy, maybe you venture into an up-tempo bombs over Baghdad. But who, who am I kidding? I, I, I wouldn't dare put that at track seven either. You got to start or end with that, that, that sort of tempo. But what you can do at that point is, is switch genres. What I'd often do to artfully switch genres is I would include one song from the Jay-Z Linkin Park collab. Huge fan of Numb. Who isn't? I, I have a pulse. Uh, but that's a, that's a helpful way to transverse categories. Another example, you could go rap to country with Tim McGraw and Nelly's over and over again. <laughs> I actually don't like that song. Um, anyway, until I got an iPod in college. I, Random shuffle wasn't a thing. Order mattered. And random shuffle to me is a dirty game of having to bear one soul over a loudspeaker that I frankly am not comfortable with. I like to control the narrative of my DJing, and I tried to do so through my CDs. What I wouldn't give to find them, to uncover them, to get my mitts on that gorgeous double-decker leather zip-cased cd holder that is so huge and obstructive it most certainly had to be the cause of majority of i don't know suburban traffic accidents from like 95 to 05 don't you think anyway and all of that effort too only to run the very high risk of, of a friend going you know flipping through your cd holder the heavy hand a little too cavalier on the release from the plastic film to potentially scratch your masterpiece and to have it skip like of what now sounds like a TikTok remix, but back then was my worst nightmare and kind of still is, if I'm honest. Kind of putting you back at square one. Well, at least burn wise, burn time wise. And 
you know, it's these small moments that define a generation far more than the overarching generalizations that people say about us. And yes, was I lucky to have a computer and, you know, be able to get CDRs that you overwrite? And was I lucky to have gorgeous handwriting that made my Sharpie art on my CDs unmatched? Like, absolutely. I, 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 my privilege knows no bounds. And I know I don't speak from everyone's experience, but I think that like just that general clunkiness and this, this, the sloth like process of the means we had to get to the end of the modern technology we have now instantaneously allows us to appreciate the media we consume in ways that current generations may not. Things are a lot more disposable, digestible to them. And I don't even recognize the top 40 anymore. And it doesn't seem like a lot of songs stand the test of time like they used to. But maybe that's just my perspective from having grown up in that era. But what I do know is that they make fun of millennials a lot for talking too much about the 90s. And it pisses me off. Because <laughs> for all the reasons I just listed, that is why. That is why it's meaningful, because it's not disposable. To be fair, our cameras were disposable, which would make our memory seem disposable. So it doesn't really work. But my memories are much, are much more cemented and immortalized in my head than the half-used film of a disposable camera I took to my 18th trip to Colonial Williamsburg. Shortly, I'll get to the meat of the discussion, which is uh, Gen Z's political activism. But first, I have to read to you some of like the ways that they've been roasting us in recent weeks on like TikTok and Twitter. I don't know why this annoys me more than usual, because people make fun of us all the time and like everybody thinks we're ruining everything. It's like we've ruined fast casual dining. We ruined the American dream in housing like. I, like, I'm so tired of millennials being accused of taking down something for just, like, making decisions that are different from previous generations. But when Gen Z does it, they're innovators. They're path pavers. I don't know why everything a millennial does is seen as an opportunity to be obnoxious and, dis- and disruptive. And why every Gen Z are doing the same thing is like a disruptor, you know? Those are always my two things. It's like, depending on the tone and depending on the stereotype and depending on if it's a man or a woman or gender like the disruptor and disruptive are two very different things that are labeled to people depending on solely how they're judging you because so often efforts to be different are you know not always in vain and might be better for you know pushing things forward so allegedly this trend started because this person on tiktok expressed their frustration on a video that boomers frequently lump millennials and gen z together i i feel frustrated too but I think that a lot of the bad qualities that are given to us are of Gen Z and they think the opposite. So some of um, the examples that Twitter and TikTok erupted over were, I think, things that hit too close to home for people because so like a, a baby boomer would be like, oh, you have your $6 latte and your avocado toast. Oh, you go to brunch in a fashion hat and, you know, we'll be a renter forever. And on your parents' insurance, like, wow, cool, millennial. And it's like, okay, shut up. You don't get it. But these comments were like, they be 34 talking about I'm a Hufflepuff. Like, grow up and do a line of Coke already. What? They say things like doggo. Or they think BuzzFeed knows their favorite wine. They're all like, I'm just going to drink my coffee. Blah. People that say adulting. Millennials will attack you if you disrespect their Harry Potter house. No one. Millenn- no one blank. Millennials. I'm such a Hufflepuff. Monkey face. They're worried about their Harry Potter house, but they live in a one-bedroom apartment. Y'all worried about the wrong houses. <laughs> That's a little funny. Props to Gen Doyle. Uh, they always say they have a combined house like Griffin Claw or something like they miss the whole point. 
What about the ones that name their kids after video game characters? Like, to be fair, I don't identify with these things. I'm not a Harry Potter fan, but for some reason it cuts deep. Ugh, this person said millennials, I told you millennials are canceled this year. Okay, relax. That's rude. We, we walked so you could hoverboard. Aiden. <laughs> relax. <laughs> uh, I think every generation can agree that millennials were a mistake. Okay, now I'm getting mad and this isn't good for me to walk into talking about this. Uh, they're all like, ugh, I hate adulting. Just give me a slice of pizza and wine, weird smiley face. Like, Rebecca, sis, sit down, you're 32 and an alcoholic. Oh my god. <laughs> These people, my hatred toward millennials is indescribable. Millennials be like, Yikes, I'm adulting right now. Ugh, I need to go get avocado toast. Okay, Big Toes 36, what did you just discover memes yesterday? Like, oh, have you ever heard of Bored Panda? Like, okay. Uh, all they do is drink wine, post cringy 90s kids memes, and talk about tech startups? I disagree. We get it, you're a 90s kid. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just a little too much. And maybe now we're feeling how, you know, boomers and Gen Xers felt misunderstood. One person made an astute comment that said, my favorite thing about younger people is that they act like they won't also get older and be replaced by younger people who will hate them just as much. We all knew everything at age 15, too, Jaden. Agree. I think the thing is, is millennials, like, we've been made so aware of our generation for so long and how we're the worst in ruining everything that we, I think we've been aware of who we were as a generation longer than maybe most were. And therefore, we've always felt like young, like we're always the irreverent youngsters doing something different. But to have them make us feel old is like a, it's a weird feeling. It's a different feeling. It is funny, though, because like uh, people on the thread in response to the guy that are like they're worried about their Harry Potter house, but they live in a one bedroom apartment. Y'all worried about the wrong houses. People are like, oh, you have one bedroom because <laughs> like yeah a lot of people let us live in studios uh, my bedrooms are fake i live in a loft and they just made up walls and like formed rooms arbitrarily i don't know this person's like don't worry they're just quirky and funny font the reason they hate them is because they talked to them before they had their coffee don't worry they won't find us they're too busy reading buzzfeed articles about why the 90s were better <laughs> i can't the generation that Tried to attend Firefest and make novelty Twitter accounts a thing. I don't have a novelty. Oh, shit. Do I have a novelty Twitter account? Oh, I did. When, okay. Yeah, when Taylor Swift got a new account, I did try to snag that handle. Didn't work, though. I just can't even believe how many of these talk about BuzzFeed. To be fair, I'm on BuzzFeed. <laughs> so I am a millennial. When I think of a millennial, I just think of a Twitter account with a bunch of labels in the bio. The Gen Z sees millennials as a generation too willing to define ourselves by our interests and identities. This comes through in a loyalty to brands, 90s nostalgia, or political figures rather than movements, philosophies, or ideals. What? That's insane. You're so into philosophies and ideals. <laughs> I can't. It's, it's kind of like the, you know, it's like the people, the condescending people that like do slam poetry and like talk about nihilism as if they've been reading extensively about Nietzsche but really they've probably just heard TJ Miller from Silicon Valley talk about it on a podcast once so frustrating sometimes I want to say Nietzsche it's Nietzsche right anyway <laughs> thankfully somebody you know swept in probably named Rebecca who said Gen Z was never really exposed to the same American dream that millennials were exposed to it's a more stoic acceptance of the state of the world thank you I um I, this is what I'm always trying to say. We grew up for a world, grew up planning for a world that no longer exists, and then we were confused. And like the the, the 
the scatterbrain of it all, the lack of commitment of it all, the financial crisis of it all, every so many things didn't work in our favor that made us straddle between these two worlds. And I and I think we have a lot of traditional values, but want to exercise a lot of our modern options. And it doesn't always land or read the right way to other people. But I think our intentions are good. And I think we're the ones that first tried to drive change. We're the ones that first tried to do things differently and ask ourselves the hard questions that Gen Z now benefits off of. And now this article, yes, it's BuzzFeed. Um, it's, it says that uh, Gen Z is kind of, uh, has more ironic humor. It's hard to tell when they're being serious or not, and they like it that way. By contrast, millenni- millennials are seen as being too earnest. Gen Z is kind of more radical than anyone else, but we rarely talk about anything 100% seriously. I think just because we grew up with the, without the serious dreams that millennials had and that we kind of grew up with this lack of hope that we've learned to accept and make a joke out of it. She added that Gen Z and millennials are coping with the same shitty world. It's just that they're making fun of millennials' particular coping mechanisms. And unless millennials want to be the next humorless generations of Karens, we should probably get over it and laugh along. And in the end, the joke is on me anyway. It's a little bit perfect that you're a millennial writing a serious piece about a joke, she told me. Touche. Dang! Whoever this person is is smart. Oh, this is a Gen Zer talking. I hate how articles say a person's name at the very top and then never again. Oh, Serena Shahidi. Okay, she's very smart. Um... Why do millennials lose their minds whenever they hear a song from a 90s Disney movie? I mean, I. <laughs> oh, God. The last time I like borderline blacked out drunk, I did run on stage and take the mic from somebody who was singing the intro song to The Lion King. But to be fair, that was some of Elton John's finest work. The general collaboration on that soundtrack. Part of your world would have been a cliche. Uh, why do millennials care so much about the fact that they're 90s kids? Sis, we know. That's when you grew up. Okay. Why do millennials use nouns in the place of verbs? I can't math. Englishing is hard today. No one's ever said that. Why do millennials only post TikToks of them dancing to music from 2003 and holding their sixth glass of wine? Have you ever had your dreams and expectations not met? Are you even 21 yet? Talk to me then. Um, why do millennials think that not, not downloading TikTok makes them an adult? I agree with that. I side with Gen Z on that. It's like, that's the irreverence, the faux irreverence, the not like other girls of it all. They're like, I'm not going to do that. That's what I don't want to be like that I need to be careful of. But even though I totally am that person. Why do millennials always say just did a thing? Bitch, you bought a cat cactus holder, SDFU. I don't love just did a thing, but there is a TikTok sound that's like, just did a bad thing. I regret the thing I did. This so Gen Z does it too. Why do millennials think they're special? Everyone knows what a VHS tape is. Buddy, sit down. Mm, mm, no comment. Why do millennials insist on DMing posts from private meme pages and drinking LaCroix? I hate DMs from private meme pages. I'm not going to follow them just to see what you sent me. Why do millennials think being 30 is a personality trait? To be fair, anybody who gets to any age is always feels that way. Just like Rachel Green said, no uterus, no opinion. If you're not 30, don't tell me what it feels like. Because it, it, things do change and you you are all the wiser and more confident and it is a new era of your life where you take a lot more ownership, you care a lot less what other people think, and it's a very freeing time that I look forward to you experiencing so you don't have to make fun of other people to attain some sort of weird self-confidence in your generation that already is getting plenty of credit that we never got. IDK why millennials are so offended by Gen Z flaming them. Like, bitch, we have spearheaded so many political movements, grown up in the age of Trump and Corona, led so many conversations about racism, written petitions, WTF did y'all do as teens? Take titty pics with your flip phone. <laughs> I'll have you know my flip phone didn't have a camera. <laughs> the, the joke is like, this is why I feel... 
not the joke. This isn't funny, but like, this is what I'm work. I'm coming from a different place. I'm having, I had to work backward. I, when I was entering my teen years, I was at, it was at Southern Christian Baptist camps that were telling me gay people shouldn't be allowed to get married. I, I, we were faced with groups that were convincing us to double down on marginalization. And now we're having to completely repair our hearts and minds and work back from that and then and, and regress through our own damage. And for that, I am sorry. And I don't believe any of that at all. But it was pushed onto me. Ugh, again, I always want to make it clear. My parents are awesome. These are just these, these places that I went. Um, why do millennials treat their Twitter bios like LinkedIn? Why do millennials name their kids like that? Like, who told them that Lakeland and Emberly were good options? What? Your name's Nicole. I mean, I don't know. Whatever. Why do millennials bring up the fact that they don't know how to live on their own all the time? They will literally boil water, then post a selfie with the caption, did some adult things today, cry face, now I need my wine. Wine emoji, tongue emoji. Because in the post-war optimism our baby boomer parents grew up in, they had a hard life and they wanted to make our lives easier, so therefore we were a bit coddled and at times maybe helicoptered, though I don't feel like I personally was. And we, to a degree, did not learn how to raise ourselves in an independent way that many other generations did. Gen Xers did do this, being the self-reliant latchkey offspring of baby boomers that raised independent-minded thinkers like you with a more liberal uh, hue than many of us were exposed to having more conservative boomer parents. And I'll have you know that tonight I am making a batch of Trader Joe's Kung Pao chicken that I do have to take from the freezer and put in my air fryer. And then I will hover around my husband until he compliments me endlessly for it because I was endlessly complimented as a child. And now I have a burdensome need for reassurance at all times from everyone around me that is truly exhausting. And that is why I drink so much wine. Why do millennials think we like them? We are not friends, Emily. This is so mean. Guys, I'm pissed. Like, remember, all I have are Tide Pods. Well, didn't they do a bunch of other stupid stuff? I don't know. I really spent so long and we need to talk raising them up, praising their natural beauty, praising their ability to have fun, their, their prioritization of social entertainment over self-promotion. I, I tried to get into the E-Boys. I still don't understand Lil Huddy, but I, I can get into some Griffin. I like him and Dixie together. I, I've really tried to be supportive and to encourage people to go over to their platforms to think they're smart and insightful. Um, but now I just feel torn down. Do you ever feel like breaking down? Do you ever feel out of place? Like somehow you just don't belong and no one understands you? Do you ever just want to run away? To, do you lock yourself in your room with the radio turned on so loud that no one hears you screaming? Because I do. Because that's a 2004 Simple Plan song. And all I do is talk about nostalgic music because I'm a millennial. But I think it's weird you stick your tongue out all the time. I think it's weird you're trying to take Cotton-Eyed Joe and the Macarena and act like it's yours. Scrunchies, bikes, sh shorts with sneakers, headscarves. Wearing actual scars as tops. We all tried to pull off that shiz in high school. Everyone's wearing, like, boyfriend denims. Like, oh, wow. So innovative. Jennifer Aniston taught us how to do that in the early 2000s. Your wide leg pants have nothing on Jenko's. You got Brandy Melville. We have Brandy Glanville. Uh, that doesn't work. I don't want her. I, I'm, i like, so I'm already annoyed at, at next week's Housewives. Um, this person said, don't fight with Gen Z, you can't win. Once when I was teaching an SAT prep class, I told everyone to quiet down, and one girl just said, ha, 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 okay, sweater, because I was wearing a sweater. <laughs> everyone laughed at me. Well, yeah, they're just, that's bullying. That's insane. Maybe millennials shouldn't have invented cyberbullying if they didn't want Gen Z to perfect it. Oh, my God. I would never survive. I think the vibe I'm getting is, like, I mean, the nihilism of it all, like, we're kind of like emo down and out, like nothing matters. Like, 
we we wallow in our apathy. Gen Z kids embrace and delight in it. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, now I'm just reading Gen Z tweets and like they're just they they are kind of funny. A lot of it I don't get. I feel weird. Like this person gave gave up a great idea. I want emo versions of idioms. Like instead of you're barking up the wrong tree, you're panicking at the wrong disco. And I agree. You can lead a horse to evanescence, but you can't bring him to life. <laughs> uh, do you think this whole time they're the like people worked at Starbucks, like having this like weird dark humor, spelling our names wrong, like spelling Mike M I C, just to mess with people? <laughs> oh man, guys, gotta move on. Okay, um, now we'll get serious. Now I'll vouch for them. That was fun. Let's let's have a more serious chat now, kind of. But really, I I, I do find this quite fascinating, and I feel like this there's sides of this story that aren't being discussed as it relates to. Um, the K-pop Black Lives Matter movement and the subsequent uh, goal of the well, okay, I'm, I'm shoot, I got distracted. First, I wanted to like actually highlight who their parents are because I think the parents deserve a ton of credit for how they turned out. Um, and I've neglected Gen X so badly in the past that I need to shout them out because I actually think that. So, like, the, the the crazy thing about Gen X, which is people born between 65 and 79, I think, um, like I said earlier, they were called, the even the XYZ system was made for generations, even though generations aren't necessarily real and just for marketing. Um, they, they were made because Generation X was considered to have so few cultural identifiers, they didn't know what to call it. So, like, the X factor, they just, like, called it X. And millennials are technically Y and Gen Z is Gen Z. And apparently Gen Alpha is coming after that. I don't even want to know how they're going to like school and humiliate me. I don't need your newborn named Guinevere teaching me about imperialism. You know, it's like, gosh, pump the brakes. Pump the... I was going to try to do the thing where I made an idiom out of a song, but I'm not going to do that right now. Um, And I think Generation X is so interesting because they're considered like the latchkey generation and they're the generation that comes from families with the highest percentage of divorce. So they're kind of marked by a level of skepticism and self-reliance and being very uh, tied to their values more than anything. And they are some of the first to really incorporate more of like flexibility, diversity, work-life balance, self-care. Boomers were marked more by it not being about you, right? Like, it's principle, it's providing, it's, you know, it's not about passion, it's about your duty. Um, it's, It's very much not based on self, and Gen X kind of incorporated this concept of self, I think, from this level of required independence. And when you look at the influential events that shape Gen Xers, it's funny that they kind of like get overlooked because like these are such major events of the 20th century. When you think about the fall of the Berlin Wall and the energy crisis, Watergate, um, the Iranian hostage crisis, the stock market tanking, the like Black Monday, like the Challenger crisis. I mean, they had a lot of like really significant cultural events or tragedies, disasters, whatever. But also, I mean, it's the freaking 80s, the, the culture of it all. 
Uh, also, why isn't anyone enlisting the AIDS crisis? Like, my God, um, there, that th- th- there was a lot of uncertainty marked by this generation as well. Maybe that's kind of what is seen to drive that skepticism or whatever. But it, Bloomberg was saying Gen X is raising Gen Z to look like them, autonomous, cynical, with looser reins. They figure things out themselves. Bloomberg spoke with experts, scoured data, blah, 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 to crunch some numbers. Their key finding was Gen Z shares the pessimism their parents had at the same age based on an annual survey given to high schoolers since 1975 at the University of Michigan. Gen Z's more cautious nature manifests itself in other ways, too. They're not a wild bunch. The chief knowledge officer at Kantar Consulting, oh, rival from my former job, <laughs> quips that Gen Z is a very old group of young people. They drink less, take fewer drugs except for pot, which they don't view as harmful, and have less sex. Again, there are parallels here with the Gen X parents, many of whom saw sex and drugs as dangerous due to the AIDS academic. There it is. I just said academic. I meant epidemic. <laughs> and Nancy Reagan's just saying no campaign. Interesting. Although Gen X didn't agree on everything, in recent years they've rallied around one defining idea. Baby boomers are a bunch of self-indulgent narcissists and their helicopter parenting transformed their millennial kids into entitled mini-me's. The shade. I really feel like my parents did not helicopter me. Like, they trusted me. They were strict, but, like, they didn't hover. I didn't take the trust for granted, so I behaved because I didn't want it lost. You know, there's freedom that comes with trust, and once you lose it, it's gone. But I really, I don't know, whatever. It's not about me. (laughs) Behold the era of the Gen X stealth fighter parents. Stealth fighter parents do not hover. They choose when and where they will attack. If the issue seems below their threshold of importance, they save their energy and let it go entirely. But if it crosses their threshold and shows up on their radar, they will strike rapidly and enforce with no warning. When these Gen X security moms and committed dads are fully roused, they can be even more attached, protective and interventionist than boomers ever were. Web junkies, they will monitor, monitor and... The headline in Blackboard sites nightly send emails to school bar members, trade advice on blogs, and look up teacher credentials. Flex workers, they will juggle schedules to monitor their kids' activities in person. Speedy multitaskers, they will quickly switch their kids into or take them out of any situation according to their assessment. Parental involvement in our schools has become an extreme sport. What am I reading? This is the AASA, the School Superintendents Association, where I get all my news. But it is interesting to think of like you raise kids in opposition to the generation below you because that would be like me being like i hate gen z i want to raise something else but like i don't feel that way like i'm like uh, truly are millennials that bad i don't get it i just think we did something different i think we were the first to be like is this what i want for my life or is this what people want for me i think we like got to this place where we had options all of a sudden and we said wait like do i need to go to college do i need to stay at this job do i need to be loyal to a company can I switch around? Can I do what's best for me? Do I need to have a spouse and have kids? Do I need to own a house? I, I, I got into the real world in the midst of a horrible recession. I'm, I've never been in the financial position to even be set up to have the financial prosperity of previous generations, and I'm being vilified for it. Let me guess I'm being a—I literally just left to get a glass of wine. I guess I'm being a whiny millennial. Also, the, the predictability of when this podcast comes out— I mean, like, that's part of the charm. It's like, be there in five. It's like, you never really know. It's supposed to come out roughly Wednesday, Thursday, but it's coming out so late because I'm getting so distracted. <laughs> and I wanted to do a deep dive, but now I feel like this isn't even educational because I'm just defending myself. But I figure, hey, maybe maybe that's what you want to hear more than something serious. But alas, now we will transition. 
first, I want to be sure to feature uh, some uh, more of the Black-owned businesses we've been talking about. I'll do a few on this episode. Um, first is One Body Studio. It's a Chicago-based Pilates studio. The listener is a client and a teacher. And um, obviously, I love that this is Chicago-based. It looks like they are doing a lot of virtual Pilates due to COVID-19. But the uh, About page talks about Nikki Taylor-Stewart, who I assume is the owner. She's taught Pilates and is in functional movement for 19 years and has been a teacher trainer for the past 10 years. In 2012, she met and began studying with Deborah Lesson. Oh, so this is a Deborah Lesson Pilates studio. Is that like kind of Windsor Pilates, like a brand of Pilates? People with Pilates have the best bods, but I... um, I don't know. I've never committed to it well enough. Anyway, she um, has been a professional Pilates teacher for 19 years, a teacher trainer for 10 years. She uh, has loved learning and teaching Pilates through her mentorship with Deborah, and along with a greater understanding of Pilates, its origins, and now what she is embracing as her lineage. She studies with Deborah both privately while assisting in her workshops, and um, she feels strong. Uh, strongly about empowering clients and teachers to know and be better in their own bodies and thus making the work an integral part of their lifestyle. She's trained by, uh, she has all the credentials in the world. Go to onebodystudio.com. Is Nikki, or it's not, the person who nominated this is, her name's Lauren. I, w- I want to make sure I'm giving the uh, origin of the studio enough credit and all the people that work there, but this is what's on their about page. But anyway, it's um, on Evergreen in Chicago, onebodystudio.com check it out i will be especially if it's virtual because i get too nervous of going to classes when i don't understand how to do the basic movements of some whatever exercise practice it is okay so the next one is shop native print sess on etsy that is so clever print sess um this listener came across it from young house love and has purchased them but thought it would be something some of the pod listeners fb group would like prices are between eight in $20. They make really gorgeous, affordable handmade jewelry catch-alls and bowls. And um, the Instagram is at shop native print says FYI. So it's so beautiful. It's um, it says if you're looking for unique handcrafted items, you've come to the right place. Each piece is, piece is made by hand and made to order. I follow the same process for like pieces. No two will be the same. Um, and it's, it's the, the, they're not cookie cutter shapes or lines with perfect symmetry. They are really beautiful, like ring holders and catch-alls. There's insane marbling. Um, there's some geometric shapes, but they're slightly imperfect, kind of like rough edge. There's a lot. I mean, it's beautiful stuff. They, and according to Etsy, over 20 people have these things in their cart. So uh, make sure to go look. It's Camp Springs, Maryland. Gabrielle Barnes is the owner. Native print says P-R-I-N-T on Etsy. Etsy.com slash shop slash native princess. That's amazing. Next is another Etsy shop, which I love. This is called Lee Print. Lee Prince Co. And this Etsy shop, it makes adorable hand-lettered and drawn cards. She'll add a personal message to if you're sending directly. And they're local to Charlotte, and this person's purchased from them. And um, they, their shop says, welcome to Lee Prince, hand-lettered and typo- typography goods. I love creating things that make you feel inspired, encouraged, and maybe even make you chuckle a little. Lee Prince specializes in handwritten and typo... Ty- is it typography? Am I stupid? Type- I keep wanting to say typography. Uh, dumb millennial. Um, uh, typography greeting cards galore. Follow them on Instagram, at Lee Prince. Uh, Alethea Fry is the owner. 
and I love her aesthetic. Her cards are so freaking funny and cute and to highly specific occasions, which we love in a greeting card. And I just saw one that was to the best plant mom. And like, is that a millennial thing? We are we are great plant moms, except I've killed five orchids in my day. Uh, and my husband won't buy me plants anymore. So mine are fake. Um, love this. So make sure to go to Etsy.com slash shop slash Lee Prince Co. Follow on Instagram at Lee Prince Obsessed. So that I'll, that's three. I'll do a couple more depending on time. But also I'm kind of running low and I want to parse these out. So if you have a black owned business you want to celebrate, please, please, please go to my Instagram, go to my highlight and go to free ads. It's a form you fill out. I would love to celebrate any and all of your favorite businesses. So please, please, please go find that form and let me know of your favorite black owned businesses. And I would love to feature them. Okie doke. I'm sure you've heard about how allegedly a bunch of uh, TikTokers, a lot of teens, uh, largely due to the K-pop Korean pop fandom randomly, there was an effort to um, sign up for you know as many tickets as possible at the Trump rally in Tulsa on that was originally planned on Juneteenth, which understandably had a bit of an outcry later was pushed back a day. There was this kind of movement to you know get all get all of these tickets after he kind of bragged about there you know there's never been an empty seat and then for people to not show up. There look to be a lot of empty seats in the outcome. There's so many different people saying different things about what that means and what the cause of that is. And then some people are saying, haha, jokes on you. We got all your data. But then there's a side of that that's like, well, you have meaningless data. So what are you going to do with it? Like, th these are the political conversations I don't want to get into uh, because it's complicated. And I actually don't even know what uh, the truth is here. But what I do know is that there was a major movement um, and I think it's an regardless of how you feel about the activity itself, I think the thing to pay attention to and what I want to focus on is the power of like stand groups, fan groups of teens that can't even vote and of platforms like TikTok that prioritize entertainment over information, almost to the point where you're being so entertained, you don't even realize you're being told information and like what that means going forward and how this makes a generation incredibly influential and how that makes fandoms incredibly influential and both Gen Z and fandoms and like stands of things like boy bands. These are all groups of people that are ca categorically dismissed constantly for eating Tide Pods, for being silly fangirls, for obsessing over something that doesn't matter, for, you know, just being boy crazy. Like, I, I think that the the juxtaposition of how unserious these people's fundamental positions were at one point paired with the way they're being spoken about now as being these like social justice warriors is super fascinating. And also I want to cover too, like there's an element here of uh, making a sweeping generalization about a group that actually also isn't all good and also has not always been a safe space for BIPOC creators and who use, who's used the same algorithm drowning techniques to not support the right causes you know so i just i i find this 180 that we're, we've pop culturally done on gen z to be fascinating to think that they were like screen obsessed to now being these like this like vigilante group it's like wild and here's the thing i am like here for a vulnerable active uh, inclusive, socially conscious generation. Like, that's so cool to me. Independent of what, you know, political, what your political beliefs are, I would hope most people are in support of the activism of youth. Like, we live in a democracy. And um, what I think is so fascinating is, you know, with their advanced knowledge of technology, young people can 
outsmart adults and play the game in ways that are like above our heads. Even thinking back to like in Wuhan, the kids who were all learning remotely amidst the coronavirus, they had to do homework through this app and they made this collective effort to give to flood the app with one star reviews because they knew that if that happens in the Apple App Store, the app gets removed from the store and therefore they wouldn't have to do homework. Like this is a craftsmanship that I'm talking about. And I'm laughing and okay, here's the thing too, like this the, there's thing that this gets complicated because it's like, you know, there's ways this can be done f- for good and for evil and obviously anything related to like legitimate fraud is a problem. Um obviously we've seen our fair share as a society of the implications of fake news and fake accounts and data data mining and like all these unfair practices that just seem like dirty and unnecessary and murky the waters of you know what is and isn't on the table in terms of how we support candidates and i yeah it, it's it's um the, it, it's a tricky thing but i think it's an important story because it really showcases the the power of how even many of these people could not vote, yet they still had tremendous influence. And it backs up my point that the more we ignore and trivialize the things that are popular, the more irrelevant we're getting and they're just gaining control. Why not understand it? Why not be a part of it? And why not choose to see it as a fascinating development of culture, not a personal threat to what you believe in, you know? So, okay, regard the, the, the point is not what you think about doing that. Um... The point is the the use of TikTok to for what this turned into, because that's been you know that's been attempted before. There have been um, older millennials and, and Gen Xers who've tried to use Twitter to um, you know kind of sabotage elements of Trump rallies before, but it hasn't really been a thing. But for you know a fifty one year old woman to put this message out on TikTok. And the enthusiasm people responded with, I guess, would be the understatement of a century. Um, But beyond that, so K-pop, Korean pop music, is notorious for its immense fandom that understands algorithms through and through, that can work content in their favor, and that absolutely can flood something with the message they want because they are so big and they're so digitally savvy. And when K-pop stands got caught wind of this um, attempt to, you know, reserve all the tickets and then nobody show up, more than like, I don't know, 300,000 people got on board like overnight. People start, you know, TikToking and duetting and posting videos saying they've registered for dozens of tickets. Essentially, the K-pop fandom, the Gen Z TikTokers, take credit for the empty seats at the Trump rally. Long story short, registering with like fake numbers, you know, snagging of multiple alleged tickets, I guess. I don't really know. There's a lot of mixed opinions on the outcome. That's not really my focus here. My focus is rather how young people can use the tactics they employ to flood hashtags, to flood for you pages, to flood algorithms with what their messaging as it relates to something as trivial as a fandom, they can use those same attention-seeking tactics as both a tool and a weapon. And it's a fascinating use and evolution of an app that in no way was designed to be political. It's actually 
designed to to not be political. It, it was expressly designed to not be about news. And the the, the feed is is not in chronological order. There's no timestamp for videos. It's very hard to figure out what happened when, and it kind of actively discourages current event discussion. And the For You page of TikTok is this incredibly complicated algorithm that I've talked about before on the We Need to Talk episode. If you haven't listened to my TikTok deep dive when I first started getting into it, um, that actually does a really interesting job curating a variety of what I call social entertainment and not social media. The goal being to entertain, not to self-promote necessarily, even though there's inevitably intersection of both. Um, The ability, not only is TikTok, the the nucleus is repetition. The name of the game is brevity. Videos are 15 seconds up to 60 seconds. The ability to go viral is so much easier Um, You can get your message out with zero followers because of how the For You page tests content with people, with new people, regardless of their following. And it's become the most effective way for your average person to have the best chance of reaching the masses through their own creativity alone. And um, it's less overwhelming and threatening and aggressive than Twitter and Facebook right now. It's less self-promotional and vapid than Instagram. You guys know I love TikTok. I'll vouch for it all the live long. I've talked about the data privacy issues before. I won't get into that now. But um, I just think that this just furthers the case for the importance of being aware of, of the power of the technology that we're so quick to write off. And there's a couple things I want to focus on here. And a really interesting point, you know, Taylor Lawrence from the New York Times, she <clears throat> writes about Internet culture and she's so good at it. And um, she quoted somebody and this quote really resonated with me because I thought it was a fascinating comparison and a fair one because of this 180 we've kind of all done on Gen Z and TikTok all of a sudden. Because literally, pe- I, like, I cannot emphasize enough how much people made uh, previously made fun of Gen Z and their hobbies of Visco girls, how much even in the beginning of quarantine, people were still hated TikTok makes so much fun of it. Like people made so much fun of me <laughs> for even caring or trying to get people on the app. It's like, I, I, it's so interesting seeing this narrative shift. And there's two things worth considering um, in a quote that Taylor Lawrence pointed out from somebody named Abby Olheiser at the MIT Technology Review. And she said in a tweet that, Older generations of liberals are now talking about teens and K-pop fans in the same way that Trump boomers talk about 4chan as vigilante forces they love but don't understand. Like, wow, it's it's true. Because when somebody's on your team, you do tend to take a more monolithic approach to how you define them and what their intentions are. And you don't really try to poke holes. You don't scrutinize. You just, you know, c- celebrate. And... I, on the more liberal side, am like, I am dumbfounded by conspiracy theorists that think that they are like, you know, coronavirus is a cover up for saving the children. And but why? And I will watch these things just because I'm fascinated by the earnestness and and how convinced these people are and how they really think that, like, some major government official is using the sketchiest website in the world to release top secret information. It's like. But also, if you trust that person, do, do you honestly think like, do, do you, I, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night thinking that our most high up, you know, security cleared government officials with all the secrets 
are using 4chan to disseminate information. Like, that makes me not trust you, period. Because you're, you're I, it, whatever. It, it depends how you look at it. This is what the vigilante thing is. It's like, if somebody's doing something wrong in the name of what you think is right, inevitably you're going to completely eradicate what they did wrong in favor of the outcome. And there's so many examples of this, of like, because, you know, whistleblowing can be a catalyst for change for a lot of corruption. A lot of people are afraid, especially with the Epstein of it all, of high-level cover-ups and corruption. I think most people don't go the full conspiracy route, but just kind of dabble in a Netflix documentary here and there. Um, but depending on how you look at things, whether it's, you know, Snowden and leaking CIA documents, Anonymous, the the hackers that release Epstein's flight logs, or you think like we're disrupting the new world order through some username on like, again, the sketchiest message forum on the internet. You know, it's it's all how you look at it, whatever floats your boat, but also be mindful of the quality of what's in your boat that's making it float because it might ultimately make it sink and like we need to be, you know, critical thinkers. Okay, anyway, so Abby Olheiser in that same article, she said um, that the the thing that, you know, obviously we're, a lot of people were like celebrating and supporting Gen Z and thought this was like a very funny, almost senior prank-like thing. Um, and many people obviously do not think it's funny. But the, what I thought that was an interesting point that Abby Olheiser brought up is that the fans and media and stands of these people are ignoring one this wasn't an effort solely uh, for Trump. This fandom has a history of organizing for causes. And two, there's actually a big problem of racism within K-pop fans toward black fans. And it kind of showcases why we almost can't generalize, you know, these groups as being these vigilante heroes. And it's important in anything we do to factor in nuance. Um, so while we don't know anything definitively for who's responsible for what, TikTok users and fans of Korean pop music, they claim to have registered potentially hundreds of thousands of tickets for this rally. Um, and what people, you know, if you're not aware of K-pop stars and their fandoms, important context is that these people are experts at getting attention online, experts at manipulating the system in their favor to support their their favorite band. Um, whether it's making, you know, particular hashtags trend to support artists, songs, releases, um, whether it's uh, kind of almost hijacking another hashtag or a mention of an artist in order to get more attention for who they like, or it's finding ways to stream as many views as possible on YouTube to like break records. There's a lot of different ways that these fans have always been doing a level of algorithmic manipulation. Um to you know work in favor of the fandom and there's like a confusing subsets of tiktok that i won't get into because i don't even fully understand them that are referred to as like straight tiktok alt tiktok um where like there's i don't know i guess kind of silos of the algorithm that really pander to people that engage with certain types of content and then they get names for that version of tiktok you're on and it's different from mainstream tiktok i don't know it's very confusing but, for example, like, these kids knew, like, the importance of deleting their posts after a day or two, like, 24 to 48 hours, because they didn't want it spreading onto mainstream TikTok. They didn't want people to see these efforts because then the campaign would catch wind of it and then it wouldn't be effective. And they, they, they think of these things in advance knowing what 
what spreads things to the masses versus what spreads things to the right people that you want to get your messaging across to. But this wasn't all this wasn't something that was organized just to take on the Trump rally. This wasn't something that people figured out overnight. The reason it was so effective is because it's with the leadership of an incredibly effective fandom that does this for other reasons. For example, I like I don't even know how many steps back I have to take this <laughs> um, without diving into Korean pop, which I kind of can't because I don't even fully understand it. But so, for example, uh, BTS is a very popular it's understatement of the century, a South Korean seven person boy band. It's the best selling act in South Korean history. Like they're a big deal. The, their song Boy With Love, I feel like, was pretty big in the States. They were on SNL. Like, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of them. It took me a minute because I remember watching the Billboard Awards. I podcasted right after it in 2018 because I was like, what just happened? Because people were going insane in the crowds, and I didn't understand it. And I think my—I don't think millennials are as tuned into the K-pop universe, um, but there's different bands, different uh, fandoms, complete with— a, fandom name that are extremely dedicated whether it's the bts army army is actually an acronym or there's another one that's exo called the exols i don't know if it's i don't know if i'm saying that right and then there's a um uh, i think it's a girl band called blackpink they call themselves the blinks um it's yeah there, there's this whole other universe that i won't dive completely into but i think it's worth understanding because um they're big they're powerful they're engaged in these sort of hive mentalities and paired with their deep understanding of what creates virality and and how algorithms work it's kind of this fascinating recipe of both like um like passion and motivation and and the the kind of enthusiasm that comes from stan culture met with the expertise that comes with internet culture and it's Honestly, it's kind of showcasing a more layered, complex, and dynamic um, side of what would normally be written off to be the exact opposite. T to see such like scale and impact uh, delivered through the most made fun of medium, a stan of a pop group, is like so interesting to me. It's so easy to d dismiss people as being like screaming, crying fans, like as being annoying, uh, you know, people that talk about the same thing over and over to the point where they're flooding social media, you know, just to get somebody's song to go to number one or whatever. Um, Kedra Chaney, a culture writer from the Learn Fangirl, said that uh, there's a narrative that seems to persist with the general public and the media about K-pop fans, that it's mostly white teen girls that comprise the fan community. It's very diverse, not just around race and ethnicity, but age as well. The stereotype of giggling teen girls does a lot to obscure the diversity of these fan communities and the more complex dynamics of how they interact. I thought that was interesting, but back to the point of this not being an effort that was just organized for Trump's rally, um, is the some of the history with uh, their the K-pop fandom groups contributions to charitable causes so for example uh the over the past five years so the army bts's fandom they've come together to support more than 630 charity projects worldwide this is according to vice 
And because their skills are truly all over the place, there's even a research account that's at Research BTS that's compiled these contributions into an interactive map. Um, and all the all of these small contributions like clearly add up. And according to the OIAA website, in its first 14 months, the group raised more than $46,000, which was used to purchase medication and supplies for health clinics in Syria, to buy biosand water filters for thirst relief, and to provide resettlement assistance to LGBT refugees in Turkey, among other causes. The Their ability to either get their the band of their choice to trend and to get the most streams and to hit number one, for them to be able to mobilize that, you know, at a moment's notice, but to also do the same thing for social causes is a it makes a lot of sense. And if the collective mentality is something that is good and is something that, you know, supports being on the right side of history, you know, like trolling white supremacists like KKK groups, extremist groups, which obviously I support the trolling of. I don't know. It kind of makes it just makes me proud of these young people that like, like, I'm always arguing for pop culture. I'm always saying these things matter. I'm always saying there's nothing wrong with being a fan, nothing wrong with liking celebrity gossip, nothing wrong with wanting to talk about influencers and bloggers and those who deny their influence are the naive ones. And this is kind of the perfect example of people that have both shallow and deep interests that are complex, dynamic characters that we overgeneralize based on their predominant hobby and that deserve a hell of a lot more credit. And by not giving them credit, they kind of came out of nowhere and showed people what they're capable of. Um, and as it relates to the Black Lives Matter movement, the, so for example, like on May 31st, when the Dallas Police Department was requesting for people to submit videos of illegal protest activity, um, one of the, like, I think fan accounts for, I don't know if it was BTS or just a general K-pop one, um, told people to download the app and send all like your fan cams which are videos of like k-pop stars performing that i guess is like part of this culture is that you send fan cams and replies to like unrelated tweets or something and uh so they all and i think they almost took down the app and when you kind of like peel this back too it's like these are young people i mean a lot of these people are doing this because they can't vote and because this is their this is their like form of a remote protest who want to have impact on their, you know, country's political system, even though they can't actively participate in the democracy yet. And I, like I, I can see this going very many ways being used for good and evil. And it's an interesting thing because even I kind of look at this through rose colored glasses, but I am largely on their side. I would be like very, very scared if I saw like alt-right movements I don't support being done in this fashion, though. You know what I mean? So it is something worth keeping an eye on. While I like I I will always argue for the importance of passion and act and activism. I'd rather somebody have a, a perspective that disagrees with me than have a person be totally apathetic. Um, I, I it's it's important. We live in a free country. It's important to be active when you're young. And there's so many layers to peel back of why Gen Z is this way. Uh, that I kind of want to dig into. There's just a lot of, um, well, to quote, so a, a lot of this article that I thought was so interesting, so so you can read it too. A lot of it I'm paraphrasing, so I can kind of explain it to you. It's from the MIT Technology Review. It's called How K-Pop Fans Became Celebrated Online Vigilantes. 
Um, and it says Koreans, mu- Korean music's vast army of online fans have been celebrated for activism during police brutality protests, but the applause has papered over a more nuanced reality. So as you know, here we're we're about going into the nuance. It gets tricky when there's something even intersecting slightly political because the more important thing is, I mean, like I'm I'm trying to be fair in terms of like, I smile at this because it supports my cause. That's super hypocritical because if it supported somebody else's cause, I would not be here for it. And I would probably call it problematic, you know. We need to be aware of the hypocrisy that lies within us, and we need to be able to admit it without thinking it compromises our political beliefs. Before I get to the racial piece, I do, I don't know, I feel like I didn't explain, like, the size and scale very well. Because most of us can, like, grasp fandoms, right? It's like, oh, Beatlemania, Bieber fever, whatever, I don't even know. (laughs) Uh, Swifties and the like. But I was reading a Forbes article that was saying even some of the biggest fan bases, Taylor Swift, Beyonce, and Justin Bieber, they they look normal in kind of a non-event relative to Korean pop music fans. So, for example, the past two months, Taylor Swift averaged around 91,000 Twitter mentions, which is about 15,000 more than expected for an artist with 85 million followers. When you look at typical um, relationships, like correlations between number of Twitter followers and number number of Twitter mentions. Beyonce uh, saw almost times, you know, three times as many weekly mentions as other artists with similar reach to her. Justin Bieber saw close to 390,000 mentions in the past week while he was expected to see right under 100,000. It's going to ebb and flow to a degree depending on what they have going on. But that's just kind of like, you know, business as usual. How do your mentions correlate to your following? And when they, they were kind of looking to see, like, who are the outliers? Who is outperforming here above and beyond the norm? And the 20 artists that did outperform over half were K-pop related. And there were two acts, according to Forbes, who leave the rest in the dust. The first is EXO, or is it EXO? I'm so sorry. I don't know. <laughs> um, it's a nine-member boy band formed in 2012 that have been called uh, by some the kings of K-pop. For an artist with EXO's reach on Twitter, so this is data from Next Big Sound. It's a music data analytics company that has metrics based on like expected engagement. Um, so this is looking at expected versus actual engagement based on the size of two k-pop bands so exo uh is an example of one that i called exo earlier but i just looked it up and i think it's actually axo i'm not sure and i'm very sorry a a so-called pop culture expert should be looking these things up I'm, i'm i'm a lot of times i'm working these things out with you like i was with tiktok i learn as you learn so exo is a nine member boy band formed in 2012 um and for an artist with EXO's reach on Twitter, Next Big Sound would expect around 1,700 uh, over the past two months. In the past week, they've saw seen over 24 million mentions, more than 14,000 times what's expected. And then they're followed closely by BTS, who have a Twitter audience that's about five times the size of EXO's. Over the past two months, BTS saw over 36 million mentions, nearly 4,000 times as many as what Next Big Sound's expected. And also, both of these groups, EXO and BTS, they have fan bases that frequently take out ads in Times Square to support and stream their music. When these bands, they have money to like take out their own ads, but the fandoms take out ads in Times Square. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. I need, I need to post the chart of expected versus actual engagement on Twitter for BTS and EXO, because relative to Bieber, Beyonce, Taylor Swift, I mean, it just isn't, it's not even comparable. They just, they over-index like above and beyond. And I think it's a really interesting thing to consider, too, as it relates to um, supporting artists and this like reverse engineering data driven approach that 
is so different than how musical artists' uh, success used to be measured. When you think about album sales and it being a limitation of, you know, going to physically get a copy before it sells out, having the money to buy a copy, we're in a very different streaming world with YouTube and, and Spotify. It's a totally different ballgame where the more, um, to quote Forbes, the more data savvy and proactive your fans are, the more power they have to impact the charts, which didn't used to be possible. And I'm so interested to see if if and when Taylor Swift puts out the next album, she's not she's not stupid. She watches these things and watches these trends. And she's the queen of figuring out creative uh, marketing methodologies that get her fans to engage with her product the most they possibly can, whether it's through verified fan through Ticketmaster, having prioritized, you know, concert seats based on how much like merch and how many CDs you buy. Um, whether it's dropping Easter eggs and the only, you know, the only remedy to figuring out these puzzles is more consumption of her product. She's good. And then she's now admitted she sits around the conference table and comes up with these schemes. And I'm interested to see how she engages Gen Z and a more data savvy generation that could probably be helping her get to the number ones she used to when she wasn't in I feel like she had more number ones when she, we weren't in this streaming realm before she wrote the Apple Music letter and wasn't on Spotify. Like, I I, I don't, that's like such a general generalization that I have no data to back up. And I don't know if it's a function of, you know, her fandom or the music quality or her mainstream popularity or whatever. But I do think that this could be harnessed by other artists. And I just, I feel like if anybody could do it, it could be Swifties. Okay, so to loop back, um, while, yes, the K-pop fans are being um, revered as these these heroes, as vigilantes for fighting racism, there's an element here of, of Black fans, Black K-pop fans that are still completely getting ironically left out of the conversation that is allegedly meant to protect their lives, meant to elevate their voices. I'm going to go back to that technology or MIT Technology Review article and quote, uh, a woman named Miranda Ruth Larson, a PhD candidate at the University of Tokyo who's researching K-pop idols in Japan. She says the tactics being employed, such as crashing hashtags, aggregating donations, and bringing attention to certain links or tweets, all of these actions, for the most part, were employed positively for Black Lives Matter. They're this, But they're the same tactics used against BIPOC fans because Black K-pop fans have long used social media to hold you know, their favorite artists, favorite boy bands, groups, whatever, accountable for cultural appropriation and for racism within the community. But this is what I mean with the downside of stand culture. The, the power behind these movements is if you agree with whatever it is they're doing, it's a great way to flood, to gain reach, to have engagement, to, you know, to get a message across very quickly and very widely. But the downside is, is that sa those same tactics will be used uh, to combat anybody who doesn't agree with them for better, or for worse. And as with any issue, the, the, there's not all good and all bad. And there's a lot of layers. And it's not like K-pop fans are predominantly in, you know, Black Lives Matter activist group. That's a, a great way they mobilized to support a cause. But this is the way they operate independent of the cause that they are working toward, whether it's getting more streams, disrupting hashtags, whatever, or criticizing and attacking other fans. So when you have extremes, it becomes 
you know, when, when there's people that are incredibly loud and inflexible in their beliefs that have a huge fandom behind them, and those leading it make it not socially permissible to challenge them, there's a hugely problematic byproduct here that it's like you're in or you're out. You have to wholly agree or wholly disagree. If you're not for us, you're against us. And like, just life doesn't work that way. Things aren't that black and white. So when black K-pop fans have used social media to hold their favorite artists accountable for racism or for cultural appropriation, because so much of black culture has influenced the hip hop that many of these K-pop groups are founded upon and the type of music that they make, the black fans have often been targets for harassment by the fandom and by the stands that absolutely refuse to acknowledge criticism. And then the black fans that are trying to hold these stars accountable for racism are the ones being attacked with the same pylon mob mentality that they're allegedly using to support the Black Lives Matter movement. And to leave black fans out of this conversation as and to get credit as being these activists, I don't know, I think it's so a lot of black Korean pop fans feel very left behind and feel like people are completely ignoring what's apparently, as I'm reading, a, a central issue to this fandom of harassment if any uh, issues of race are brought up. Another big reason this was kind of looked into and that I forgot to bring up earlier is that, um, well, well, BTS, the, the mega boy band, they, it took them a while to speak out about Black Lives Matter. I feel like it was almost a week, maybe five days. But once they did, they um, donated a million dollars to Black Lives Matter. And then the um, one in an army, the OIAA, the volunteer collective of BTS fans who have you know, been organizing these charity projects, they um, like had a campaign to match the donations and I think effectively raised another million dollars from fans um, with a campaign they called uh, Match a Million, I believe. And they split it among, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter, Reclaim the Block, the NAACP. They actually did raise a lot of money and donated it to meaningful causes. And that in no way, shape or form should be disregarded. But I do think that it, there is an element of like irony and confusion when black fans have felt largely unsupported within the fandom for a long time. And it's something I wanted to talk about because I think there is a problem of uh, leaving black creators out of the conversation of not giving credit. And if any, what we need to be doing now to move forward in, in being more anti-racist is actively looking to see when black you know, creators are being left out of the conversation and when black culture is influencing something, it's not getting credit for. And I think back to Jalea Harmon, the originator of the Renegade dance, wasn't she like 13? You know, one of the dances that shot uh, Charlie, D'Amelio and Addison Rae and co to stardom. I think at first it was negligence and now they're a lot better about credit and being newer to the platform and they're not being as big of an emphasis on giving dance credit. You know, like people just let dances exist. You think like Watch Me Whip just exists. You think the Harlem Shake just exists. You think things like On Fleek just exist. But the reality is that they don't just exist. They are actively created by black creators and the, whose content gets, you know, appropriated, gets translated, gets overused to the point where there's a certain level of ubiquity suggested that makes it, they seem to have appeared out of thin air, but somewhere along the lines, the black creator of this thing that's incredibly popular and commercialized gets lost. They get no credit, they get no fame, they get no glory, they get no money. And it's just, you know, to, to completely be erased in the process of a thing you created, I cannot imagine 
how maddening that is. And it's something that's really important to be mindful of. I got really off topic and went into this whole deep dive of (laughs) that I need to talk about at some point because I think it's really interesting as it relates to copyright law and intellectual property. Um, Because there, the internet culture, there's the reliance of internet culture on marginalized communities to take these trends, to repurpose them, remix them, to take credit for them, to erase the person that made them, and for them to then get to mainstream media outlets and mainstream society on television and never acknowledge the people who did the work to create them is a crazy thing. Uh, But it's actually a a problem um, with copyright law because it doesn't follow the creative production of artists. It protects the interests of companies. And I was kind of reading about um, how intangible things like slang um, or, you know, short pieces of dance choreography or whatever, like, why aren't those things considered valuable, um, even though they're reproduced and used by large entities and large companies and brands that, you know, repurpose them for their own gain? And yet you can't invest in trademarking them. There's no way to protect them. And beyond that, nobody's given credit for them. And it kind of is a shame to not have any trademarkable, protectable intellectual property, to to not have a more clear uh, marker of origin as it relates to these trends that largely come from marginalized communities in terms of them ultimately getting paid out on it. You know, credit's one thing, but money's important, too. And anyway, I think a large part of the issue was that, um, you know, K-pop stands being revered, being kind of looked at as a homogenous group, actually being a very diverse group, having a lot of black fans. The the racism that black fans experience within that fandom and them now being revered for supporting them while ignoring those issues is frustrating because, for example, if they, you know, fans push back on one of the BTS members sampling J- cult leader Jim Jones uh, a voice for a song or, you know, things like uh, cultural appropriation in music or in clothing and style with, the, you know, pushing back on the use of cornrows, of grills. Um, one girl group fully did blackface to pretend they were Bruno Mars, I think, to sing Uptown Funk. Like, obviously, these are not okay and fans are going to push back and they have the right to hold their favorite groups accountable. But a blind stand leaves no room for criticism and they get defensive and aggressive and see themselves as defending their idol against what's an attack. But, you know, to people of color, they're like, no, this is an example of systemic racism in action. And Kedra Cheney, who I quoted earlier from the MIT Technology Review article, she said for a lot of black fans, including myself, to see white K-pop fans get praised and credited in the media for anti-racist activism while black fans have faced and will continue to face anti-black harassment online for spearheading these conversations feels like a punch in the gut that we're being used for our social currency and then discarded. And I just think it's an interesting thing to be mindful of and like, you know, uh, this kind of fandom being heralded for the their activism but cheney also said that a week later you know the the k-pop fans are actively targeting hashtags and kind of moving on and the references to black lives matter slow down but like not everybody has the option to shift to the next trend right like the people who these issues affect the most the people that you're fighting for um and whose voices you're trying to elevate 
kind of gets silenced when the focus is on you and left behind when the focus shifts. And that's something that I can't even imagine how frustrating that would be. So while there's obviously a noble element to trolling white supremacists um, and like police surveillance of peaceful protesters who have the right to assemble, like there's so many interesting things that happened here and especially positive. And when you think about even donations, I don't think anybody can deny that it's an incredible use of of, uh, power and influence to amass $2 million to organizations that promote equal rights. Um, But with that comes the irony of a problem. I think we all need to be always uh, digging deeper and unveiling different layers of an issue to not take that monolithic approach, to not say everything's all good or all bad, to not say if you're on my side, it's okay. If you're not on my side, it's not. I think we have to be mindful of these hypocrisies because they divide us further. And as always, my point is to look deeper, to dig into the layers, to find the real story. And you know better than everything is all one thing. (laughs) Nothing is that simple. Nothing is that one dimensional. And if anything, we need to move forward, always being looking for and being mindful of situations where things seem all one way, but there's inevitably going to be people being left behind, being people whose voices need to be elevated the most. And beyond that, being mindful of the hypocrisy of like, if you are saying and doing all these things on social media publicly, donating this and that, it's like, well, what are you actually doing for Black people in your lives, for Black voices you could elevate for Black people within the fandom? Like, it's, it is it, the, the movements and the altruism and the reverence of people caring about these things sometimes can overshadow the importance of the day-to-day tactical what I would consider pretty intuitive, minimal requirements of just making sure that the people who you're supporting, first and foremost, feel welcome and supported in the group that's getting credit for supporting them. You know, like, I just, it's kind of crazy. Anyway, guys, I I was gonna, it's already, I'm already at two hours. I was gonna talk more about, uh, why, 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 why does everything take me so long? Anyway, guys, I'm going to let you go, actually. I'm going to save my other topic for a different day. I already recorded it, but it would add so much time to this podcast that let's, I'm like, let's keep it sharp. Let's keep it tight. Let's keep it two hours. Um, Anyway, I had so much fun today. It was interesting to meander through different topics of differing levels of seriousness. And you guys are awesome for always sticking with me. This is kind of a weird episode. It's coming out late because I decided last minute I wanted to do this. I don't even know what it's about. I always just hope for the best and you guys are so cool and like willing to listen to my ramblings no matter the topic and I'm just so so grateful for you so thanks for being here I hope you learned something if not I hope you at least learned that maybe we gotta like try to be a little cooler on the Gen Z folks I don't want to turn into a like the perception of a boomer um but anyway I if you want to listen to the Mary Kate Nashley deep dive lol and nostalgic deep dive um on patreon go to patreon.com slash be there and vibe it's so good it's with a listener it's so fun we meander through all the greats passport to Paris billboard dad holiday in the sun we talk a ton about full house we talk about dual star we talk about the direct VHS movies my first video being held against their will you know, and it's also kind of an IP conversation with how they're so much richer than other child stars because somebody named Robert Thorne set them up for life. And uh, there's a PowerPoint party this Sunday, too. So you'll get to the link for that if you get to join or if you choose to join. I'd love if you rated and reviews five stars, told a friend. If you wouldn't mind sharing this on your story, if you like it, that'd be really cool. 
just to help a fellow millennial out. There's a fellow idiot trying to chase their dreams like a, a, a perfect a idealistic moron when I should have just been making ironic memes on the Internet this whole time. Um, I would so appreciate you sharing. And please, if you're private, send it to me because I can't see it. Instagram has redone the way they alert me of people tagging me in their stories. And I feel like I'm not seeing all of them and I'm whatever. I don't know. Just make sure you send it to me. And if, and if I don't comment on it, it's probably because something happened and I didn't see it or I saw it in passing. Then I lost the notification. Now I can't find it again. <laughs> it's a whole thing. Uh, but anyways, you guys are awesome. I'm going to leave you with the song that really destroyed my vibe in my summer of 04 mix. Just to, I guess, destroy yours too. <laughs> just kidding. It's actually an 80s song. It's a monster ballad from the infomercial Monster Ballads, which is my second favorite late night TV infomercial that I bask in the cold blue light of next to Pure Moods. Which is the one that started with like Enya and uh, or- Orinoco Flow? Is that right? You gotta love some Enigma, some uh, tubular bells. Oh yeah, they just straight up threw Mr. Big did just like I did and threw in the wrong song and put uh, the X Files theme song on Pyramids. It's crazy. Look up that infomercial on YouTube. It's a it's a real trip, direct from Europe. All right, guys, I love you. Come back next week. Tell a friend. Please stick around. I, I you know I, I I'll try to be better. <laughs> um like i just i really feel like i'm losing my mind some weeks and i just like don't even know what we're working toward anymore and i just appreciate you allowing me to spiral with you as always let me know your thoughts and i will let you know mine i'll be there in five i swear 